Before we start, a quick word from one of my favorite podcasters. From the creator of Noodle Loaf, another popular podcast for kids and an absolute favorite in my household, comes a new book, Families Can, a board book that celebrates the diverse ways a family can look. The book is written in a fun-to-read rhythmic rhyme, and the illustrations by Brooke Smart are just gorgeous. This is a book for all families, about all kinds of families, because after all, it is our differences that make us unique, but our love that connects us together. So if you're interested, go to noodleloaf.com forward slash past, P-A-S-T, to pick up your copy. Buying through that link also helps support this, my show, so everybody wins. I'm Mick Sullivan, and I endorse this message. Hey, it's Mick Sullivan, which means this is The Past and the Curious, which means this is episode 57, which means, well, I'm not sure what else it means, but you're here and that's great. I'm glad you are. July 4th is right around the corner and Juneteenth was just a few weeks ago, so I drew some inspiration for these stories in this episode from each of those holidays. Both people in each of these stories were impacted by one of those days, and as it so happens, each one of those people made an impact riding a horse. And also, as it would just so happen, we know the names of each of these people's horses, Star and Old Paint, respectively. So while this is a great episode to listen to and think about July 4th or Juneteenth, it's also just a good episode to listen to for some pretty cool people on horses. As always, thank you for listening. Be sure to leave a good review if you enjoy the show or tell somebody. That word of mouth stuff is really, really helpful and helps us find more and more people to share what we love. So thanks again, everybody. Let's get going. In some cases, it is hard to know what's real. There are plenty of stories from the past that many of us know, which may or may not be true. And in many cases, we assume they are. Historians use things called primary sources to understand, interpret, and check the facts of lives and events from the past. Primary sources are things like documents, objects, or images that come from the same time and place as a person or event. If these sources are available to us today, they can help us understand a story more completely. With a trained eye and brain, one can learn a lot by reading George Washington's letters, or looking at a map of the Chisholm Trail, or even analyzing the image of someone if it was made or taken in their actual presence. If you visit a museum, Many of the objects you'll see are primary sources too. Tools, remnants, and artifacts of people from the past. These sort of things can teach us a lot, but what about when there is almost nothing, no primary sources from a part, an important part of a person's story? Furthermore, what if that person has an amazing story that we just love to tell, but because of having no primary sources, we're not really certain how true it actually is? Should we stop telling it? Or should we tell it the same way that we always have? Or should we continue to share it with the understanding that there is some uncertainty in the tale? Some argue that people only tell the stories that they find valuable, true or not. And perhaps that can be an explanation for the tale of Sybil Luddington. By the time Sybil maybe enters, maybe doesn't enter the history books, the idea of America's independence from Great Britain is pretty concrete, though the Revolutionary War would last many more years. 
It was April of 1777, nearly a year after the Continental Congress created the primary source document known as the Declaration of Independence. And here's how the commonly told story of Sybil Ludington goes. Sybil was 16 and the oldest child in a house full of children. There was probably not a lot of time for teenage matters in her daily life, with chores to do and siblings to help care for. Not to mention it was the 1700s and we, as a species, were a long way from the typical teenage amusements that we know today. At any rate, Sybil was an independent and confident young lady. She knew the roads, the rivers, and the forests of her native Putnam County, New York, like the back of her hand. This area, by the way, was right across the state line, or rather colony line, of Danbury, Connecticut. Both of these places are not too far from New York City, and New York City was where the British Army was headquartered. Above all, these British soldiers were intent on crushing the American Rebellion and keeping them loyal to the King of England. At the time, Sybil's neighboring town, Danbury, was home to a large amount of weapons, food, gunpowder, and other essentials that the American rebels stored for safekeeping and ready for use. The under-equipped American soldiers and militia needed this stuff very badly. But more than that, they needed it not to wind up in British hands. It was not unusual that the British redcoat soldiers would push their way into the land beyond New York City especially if they heard that there were valuable items being kept in any given town. To seize a stockpile was a double win for the British. By stealing a hidden cache of weapons and food, they A. kept those items out of the hands of their adversaries, the pesky Americans, and B. well, they could use them themselves. So you can imagine why when they heard about the stockpile of stuff in Danbury, they basically put a bullseye on the town and started marching that way. Sybil's dad was the colonel of a volunteer regiment fighting against the British soldiers for American independence. Most of the men that he commanded were scattered around the surrounding county and regularly tended to their farms, mills, or businesses in these smaller towns. April was an important time for the jobs these men did outside of, you know, soldiering. So Henry Ludington allowed them to return to their homes to work the farms and feed their families, knowing that there may be a call to muster or assemble quickly in preparation for battle. If this call came, they were to drop what they were doing and rush to his house and prepare for battle. And tucked into beds, tired from a day of farming, in homes scattered across the New York countryside, is exactly where all of these men were when a rider showed up on the steps of Colonel Ludington's house one stormy night. He had ridden non-stop and was exhausted, left with only enough energy to finish his job and nothing more. He pounded the door and yelled a warning to Colonel Ludington before dramatically passing out on the stoop. The warning? Oh, the British soldiers were marching on Danbury and would soon seize the valuable stockpile that was essential to the local militia. Something must be done. They must be stopped. Thunk. There was no time to waste. The colonel had to muster the troops. And with them spread out for miles, someone needed to ride across the country to alert them all. The colonel couldn't be in two places at once. He'd need to be there when his militiamen began to arrive. But he also needed to tell them to come and muster in the first place. Who could he send in his place to muster these men? 
Enter his daughter, Sybil. Stories vary on if it was Sybil's idea or her father's, but both agreed she was a capable writer and despite the raging storm, knew the roads and forests of the area better than anyone. So Sybil saddled up her steed, Star, and off she went with Star the Steed, screaming something like, Surprise! The soldiers from over the sea are super close and stealing our surplus stuff! Actually, it was more like, The British are coming. Of course, those words are not as interesting, and generally associated with someone else, a man named Paul Revere, but her remarkable ride to warn the Americans would have even inspired reverence from Paul Revere himself. In fact, his ride would look like a walk in the park in comparison. By some accounts, her ride was 40 miles in the rain, though probably not uphill both ways, as she approached outcrops of homes and farms where she knew her father's trusted militiamen lived, she shouted over Star's hoofbeats, Colonel Luddington demands you muster immediately! Huh? Uh, wh what did she say? Colonel Mustard demands my mustard immediately? Oh, is it July 4th already? Uh, it's only 1777. I don't think it's a hot dog kind of a day yet. Besides, the narrator already said it's April. Muster! I said muster! The British have taken Danbury! The colonel demands you muster on the green! Wait, what? Okay, maybe this'll work. Surprise! The soldiers from over the sea are super close and stealing our surplus stuff! Okay, so what you're saying? Muster! Okay, okay, we're coming. Before the sun came up, Colonel Luddington's men were assembled and marching to Danbury. And Sybil was recuperating from a revolutionary ride. Alas, her father's men were not able to save the surplus of stuff, but they did give the British a big fight, chased them back to New York, and considered it a moral victory. Sybil, for her part, went down in history. Or did she? Many know the story of Paul Revere, and he went down in history for a similar ride, shouting the British are coming. But that was mostly because a famous poet named Longfellow wrote a poem about him that schoolchildren used to memorize. Sybil went back to her life, eventually married a soldier, and lived in relative obscurity without much money, and she was buried without much celebration in 1839. Her story never really caught fire in her lifetime. Is that because it didn't happen? Or because no one wrote it down for a period of time? It's hard to know because there aren't a lot of primary sources about this event. The first written account of her story didn't appear until 1880, 61 years after her death. That would not qualify as a primary source. Perhaps it was passed on by word of mouth, but anyone who's played the game of telephone knows how that can go. Not long after that, some of Sybil's own descendants published an account of the soon-to-be-famous ride, but being 80 years removed from the actual lifespan of the woman in question, and over a century removed from the actual event, well, it's also hard to know how accurate their version is. Speaking of primary sources, though, after her veteran husband died, she filed for a widow's pension, basically asking the government for money to support her in her old age in honor of her late husband's service. This was common for soldiers and their families, but Sybil was denied. And never once in the application did she say, 
hey, I was the girl who ran around saying, surprise, the soldiers from over the seas are super close and stealing our surplus stuff, or something like that. That seems like information that she would have shared, don't you think? So maybe we have to settle for never knowing the truth. Did Sybil get left out of the initial history books because she was a woman and people were more interested in preserving the stories of men like George Washington? Did her story eventually get amplified because people were eager for new and diverse stories to tell of the revolution? Did her family build up the narrative? Is everything we think she did 100% true? 50% true? Does it matter? These are questions that we can ask about her and many others. The only thing that I know for sure is that even if she didn't make the ride, the narrative created around her life is plenty powerful enough to inspire generations of people to tell her story. While she might not have actually mustered troops during the revolution, her image and story has mustered the interest and inspired the passions of thousands of women, men, and children who value her story. And that counts for a lot. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and Ava from California has one that I think fits with July 4th. Hi, I'm Ava, and I'm going to talk about the Gettysburg Address. Abraham Lincoln spoke the Gettysburg Address after the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. Lincoln wrote about half of the speech on a train after leaving the White House, so it had less than 275 words. Lincoln's main purpose of the speech was to inspire people to keep fighting, and who would have thought two minutes which changed the course of history forever? Very nicely done. Uh, I know that I've probably mentioned it several times, but I happen to live very close to where Abraham Lincoln was born. It's about an hour away from me in Kentucky. And if you're ever in the area, I think it's a great thing to visit. Thank you, Ava. And if you have a you have 30 seconds, you have a you have a you have a 30 seconds, then you just need to make a voice memo in 30 seconds or less and send it our way. Hello at the past and the curious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time, 
Yep, yep, yippee-ki-yay. It's quiz time, everybody. Question number one. Before Paul Revere's famous ride on horseback, he had to cross the Charles River without being noticed by British ships. When his rowboat set out, he and his friend realized their oars were very noisy and would get the attention of British soldiers, so they dampened the noise by wrapping the connections in what? Well, one of the men on the boat got the attention of someone in a nearby house, and a few seconds later, a pair of long wool underwear came floating out of the window above. They wrapped the oar couplings in the wool, and off they went, undetected, thanks to a nice rebel lady's underpants. Question number two. Many famous people have had famous horses, and one of those people was the famous general-turned-emperor of France, Napoleon. Was Napoleon's horse named Marengo, Bucephalus, or Mr. Ed? Mr. Ed was a horse from a TV show about a talking horse, and Bucephalus was the horse ridden by Alexander the Great, so both of those were wrong. Napoleon's horse was Marengo, a great Arabian horse that carried him thousands of miles and in and out of many battles. His skeleton sits on display in London today. Question number three. There's a famous man named Nat Love who got his most notable job in Dodge City, Kansas in the 1870s. Any idea what Nat Love's notable Kansas occupation was? He was a cowboy. Black cowboys were not unusual, but Nat was probably the most famous. This is largely thanks to the autobiography he wrote in which he mentions crossing paths with people like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and a bunch of other people from out west. He also worked as a Pullman porter on rail cars, a rodeo performer, and a security guard in his lifetime. Here comes a story about another black cowboy. In the United States of America, there are two very different Independence Days. July 4th is the day that Americans have set aside to celebrate their schism, their split, their sayonara, their separate independence from King George III and his dominion of Great Britain. Now, in reality, July 2nd was actually the date that Congress made the momentous vote, agreeing to say toodaloo and declare independence. But it took a few days to get the words right in the document. I guess toodaloo didn't work very well. This delay in turning in their homework the Declaration of Independence, is why the 4th is celebrated as Independence Day. But to cloud it up even further, consider that the general public didn't even know about the Declaration until July 11th, so folks in America could have easily been slathering mustard on hot dogs and ooing and aahing over fireworks on any random day in that span, all in honor of going Splitsville with the crown. But another date, June 19th, or Juneteenth, as it is called, is just as important when it comes to independence in America, but in a very different way. The Declaration of Independence from 1776 had to do with the country becoming its own nation, independent of any others. But it didn't have a single thing to say about the independence from human bondage of the people living in its newly declared borders. Millions of people spent the next century without freedom of their own, Chattel slavery was legal in much of America, and had been for generations. People brought from Africa against their will, and their descendants would long for freedom for lifetimes. Most of those longings were unfulfilled, 
In the 1860s, the American Civil War brought about the beginning of a monumental change in America. The Emancipation Proclamation, officially issued by President Abraham Lincoln, went into effect on January 1, 1863. It said all people held in slavery were free within the seceding southern states, or the states who declared war on and left the American Union. However, since the southern states, then known as the Confederacy, did not recognize Lincoln's power as president at the time, it did not actually mean freedom for most of the millions held in slavery. This meant the proclamation really didn't do much for freedom. So you might think that freedom finally came after the Confederate army was defeated and surrendered on April 9, 1865 at the end of the American Civil War. But it was not quite that definite either. In these days, words traveled slowly, and in many far-off places, plantation owners, who had no qualms about enslaving other people, also had no qualms withholding honest information from those very same people. After the war, in places such as Texas, slavery still existed because the U.S. Army could not inform and enforce the new ruling that slavery was abolished and all people were free. On June 19, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger and his forces arrived by boat in Galveston, Texas and read these words. The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with the proclamation of the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. This is often symbolically celebrated as the end of slavery in the United States. But as you'll learn with almost all history, nothing is ever clean nor precise. Countless enslaved men and women fought for their own freedom in many ways. Many succeeded. Others didn't experience freedom even after this date. Despite slavery still existing in other ways after this, June 19th did become known as Jubilee Day, Emancipation Day, and as Juneteenth, which is sort of a portmanteau of June and 19th. In the years afterwards, Juneteenth celebrations have happened annually all around the country. Now, another part of that proclamation read on the 19th often gets left out. It said, The freedmen are advised to remain at their present homes and work for wages. Now, for one man named Charlie Willis, that was not good enough. He would not stay and keep doing the same thing that he had done while held in slavery. Charlie lived near Austin, Texas. In his part of the world, Many of the former enslaved men and women had a difficult time taking advantage of their freedom. Many struggled to earn a living and feed a family in the years after emancipation. But Charlie was a young man, and he felt most comfortable high atop a horse. And he had nothing to lose, so he packed up and left Austin. After that, he never really settled down in the same place for long, because the job he found himself doing was working as a cowboy. Cowboys had been working in the American West and Central America for decades by this time. In fact, many of the first were Mexican cowboys known as vaqueros, which is actually where the Americanized version of the word buckaroo comes from. And by the time Charlie Willis was a buckaroo riding the trails, cowboys of the West looked all sorts of ways. Black, white, South American, indigenous, you name them, they were out there doing cowboy things. And what cowboy things did Charlie Willis do? Well, Charlie was a drover who worked for a rancher. This rancher owned a lot of cattle, and these cattle were raised to become food for other people in America. 
but each and every cow needed to get from Texas to a place like Chicago or another major city before they could grace the dinner tables of 1800s America. And this is where Charlie and the other drovers came in. It was their job to keep the herd together, safe and fed, and to guide them along to their ultimate destination. Now for a few years, the cattle would be taken overland from Texas all the way to Missouri, but it was a long walk, and sometimes there wasn't enough food to keep the herd fed. Plus, these roaming animals brought unwelcome things like new tick species and other pests with them. So Missouri said, no, 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 no. You are not bringing your cattle and their ticks to our state to catch a train. You're gonna have to figure something else out. So people slowly expanded the railroad until there was a nice rail line in Abilene, Kansas. And soon an enterprising man built a huge stockyard, giant pens to hold the flood of oncoming cattle. This was still hundreds of miles north of the Texas border though. So Charlie and all of the other drovers in Texas would tread a trail with a herd after herd of cattle sauntering their way across the plains. And the Chisholm Trail, as it was known, would lead them from their Texas ranch across the Oklahoma Territory to the railroad line in Kansas. The journey took weeks. Charlie and his team of about 15 other drovers were responsible for thousands of cattle. Along the way, they met plenty of rough terrain and some dangerously tricky rivers to cross. Of course, these long walking cattle could wander off, get mixed up with other herds, refuse to cross a river, or in the worst possible scenario, the herd could get spooked and stampede. It's hard to imagine anything much worse than a stampede if you're a cowboy. Stampedes were bad news. During such a confusing and thunderous melee, it would be easy to lose the rancher's cattle forever. But also in the wild charging, cattle could trample and hurt anyone nearby, including a cowboy and his horse. And Charlie most certainly did not want his horse to be hurt. Most stories say that the beloved horse Charlie Willis sat atop was a steed known as Old Paint. With Old Paint, Charlie would ride beside the countless cattle. Miles and miles a day they'd travel, often parched in the hot Texas sun, Every chance they'd get, the huge cow party would stop at watering holes so the animals could get a drink. And on a good day, the cattle would spend the rest of their time eating and walking. Walking and eating. They'd eat every plant that they could find, which is why spring was an ideal choice for the journey. Above all, Charlie's day was dedicated to keeping them calmly moving in the right direction. And it must have been quite a sight to see. To keep the steer calm and collected... Charlie had a secret weapon, his sweet, sweet singing. Today, there are a lot of romantic ideas about the lives of cowboys. One of the most romantic notions is about cowboy songs. And it's easy to picture a cowboy atop a horse or lying down to sleep around a campfire, singing something like Home on the Range. And this is rooted in some truth. It's believed that the most famous of cowboy songs, Home on the Range, was in fact first sung on the Chisholm Trail. But like many things from the past, it can be difficult to find the exact origin. Before people had the ability to record sounds easily, songs would be passed around from person to person. A song would start in one person's mouth, go into another person's ear, out of that person's mouth, into another person's ear, out of that person's mouth, into an... you get the point. One thing for sure is that the idea many of us have about cowboys singing songs 
is thanks to Charlie Willis. Songs that were used to communicate, to pass time, and most likely to keep the cattle calm and unspooked. Because a spooked cow is a stampede just waiting to happen. Stampede bad, song good. One of Charlie's specialties was a song called Goodbye Old Paint. As we mentioned, it is believed that his horse was named Old Paint. Definitely a curious name for a critter, but nonetheless, it made for a great song to sing to the cattle on the trail. In the years after his life, he died in 1930, his song became one of the most recognizable cowboy songs in America. Unfortunately, no one ever made a recording of Charlie singing it, which is an egregious and sad mistake. Luckily, he taught that song to a young boy named Jess Morris, and in 1942, a man named John Lomax was very interested in archiving and preserving old songs before they disappeared for good. So he had a full-grown Jess Morris sing the song just as he had learned it from Charlie Willis. This is the closest we'll ever get to hearing cowboy Charlie Willis sing the song. So here's a bit of Jess. Listen and try to imagine being alone with a herd of cattle and the big open sky. Well, there you go. What do you think? Hottest bop of summer 2021, right? Old paint? That's what I think. That's probably what those cows thought. Anyway, now it's time for me to throw some thanks around. First and foremost, I need to thank Apollonia and Emil Hernandez. Hello, Apollonia and Emil. I'm so glad that you are out there and that your family enjoys the show and finds value in it. I really appreciate it. And you're all uh, joining on Patreon. Helps keep the lights on. I can keep going. It's great. Thank you very much. Um, now, uh, the other thanks that I have to send out to a pair of sisters, as it would turn out, a pair of movie trailer making sisters, um, I'm going to send you your thanks in the form of song. Marion and Elise, this is for you. Marion and Elise, you're listening every week. You're probably in the car backseat. Right now Making movies with Lego people Stuffed animals and cats Titanic trailer with Lego people Clinging to jumps with soap in the back My heart will go on Elise and Marianne Till the end of this song, it's for you. Hey, Marion and Elise, thank you very much. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. I'm Mick Sullivan. We'll talk to you next month.